Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from beautiful Chapel Hill, North Carolina. If you have listened to this show at all in the last, what, 11 and a half years since we started it, you've probably heard my exhortations to try to understand the Chinese perspective on things, to practice informed or cognitive empathy. It's been a constant theme on this program. Well, today, we'll be looking specifically at Chinese... <clears throat> we'll... Well, today, we'll be looking specifically at important facets of the Chinese perspective, popular Chinese sentiment toward the United States, and Chinese perceptions of how China itself is perceived internationally. The Carter Center's China Perception Monitor recently partnered with Rewe Corp, a Canadian survey data collection outfit, to survey just uh, short of 3,400 Chinese people in the PRC, and the results are very interesting, if not entirely surprising. We will uh, do more, though, than just look at some survey results because my guests will doubtless have some real insights into the factors that are behind these shifts in perception. Joining me today to talk about Chinese perceptions is Yahweh Liu, Liu Yahweh, the Senior Advisor on China at the Carter Center in Atlanta, someone whose tireless work on behalf of a better understanding of China and the avoidance of conflict has made him someone I have long admired. Yahweh, glad to finally have you on Seneca. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you and through you to many, many people who are fans of your podcast. Well, that's wonderful that you could be here with us. And uh, also joining me is Michael Cerny, who's associate editor of the U.S.-China Perception Monitor and an MPhil candidate at Oxford. Uh, he's worked on this survey research. And Michael, uh, thanks for, for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having us on the on the podcast. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have you. First, before we get into the survey itself, let's talk a little bit about the Carter Center and the U.S.-China Perception Monitor. Uh, Yahweh, could you give us an introduction to the Carter Center's work on U.S.-China relations? And then maybe, Michael, you can tell our listeners who aren't already familiar with it about the Perception Monitor and its work. So, Yahweh, first to you. Thanks, uh, Kaiser, for that question. Uh, obviously, the President Carter was known for uh, being the U.S. president that uh, formalized uh, the diplomatic relationship between the United States and China. 
after President Carter was defeated uh, by Ronald Reagan in 1980, uh, he visited China in 1981 at the invitation of of Deng Xiaoping, and then he, because Deng said, you know, you're a good friend of China, you are welcome to visit China at any time you would like to. So during one of his later trips to China, uh, President Carter told uh, Deng Xiaoping that uh, now. I run a Carter Center. We would like to have some projects、uh, on the ground in China. You have any recommendations? And、uh, I believe、mm-hmm. uh, Deng Xiaoping told President Carter, you know, Deng Pufang, his、uh, paralyzed son, was the chairman of the National Association for the Disabled People in China. Right. So that's the first project that the Carter Center got involved is to offer special training. Uh, for the teachers、uh, at the special schools, you know those that are deaf,、hmm. and then、uh, the second project is to, again,、uh, working through the National Association for the Disabled, is to help China uh, import uh, a German artificial limb production line, which I believe is still operational in China. So that's the earlier part of the Carter Center's involvement.、Uh, that's largely、uh, in the area of health. Then, in about 1996,、uh, one of the directors at the Carter Center heard that there were village elections in China, and through this director and the counterpart in China,、uh, the Carter Center and the Ministry of Civil Affairs signed uh, uh, MOU,、mm-hmm. basically inviting the Carter Center to observe village elections in China. So that agreement was formalized in 1998. So that's when I came on board、mm-hmm. because the director,、uh, Professor Robert Pastor,、uh, is is actually a Latin American hand, and、uh, I was his student at Emory, so he invited me to come on board, and we started working there, and that work literally ended、uh, in about you know in 2012 when lastly we invited a group of Chinese scholars and officials to observe the second. Election of of President Obama.、Hmm. Uh, after that point, I think we were told directly and indirectly, you you guys are no longer welcome to work on promoting grassroots democracy in China.、Uh, and if there's anything you would like to do, we would like that to focus on promoting better understanding between the U.S. and China. So that's when we made the switch in twenty. 12. Right, right, right. Very different time. <laughs> yeah. Since then, we've been working on stabilizing. You know, particularly after 2017,、uh, and and to increase better understanding. So this recent survey is one of the effort on that front. Fantastic. So, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about the U.S.-China Perception Monitor that you've been working on, and and some of the other projects that you've undertaken while while serving there as as associate editor. Absolutely. So,、uh, as Yahweh mentioned, after the end of much of the Carter Center's on-the-ground activities related to China in 2012, the U.S.-China Perception Monitor was established in 2013 in order to support、uh, the Carter Center's goal of stabilizing the U.S.-China relationship. And the specific editorial focus of the website、uh, is surrounds clarifying misperception, and by that we mean the gap between reality and how individuals perceive, understand, or interpret 
phenomena related to the U.S.-China relationship. Hmm. So at the moment, the, the website publishes a variety of content like interviews and commentaries surrounding some of these misperceptions. For example, uh, how mistranslation can affect the relationship, uh, both at the non-governmental and at governmental levels. And of course, uh, the, our, our latest project, uh, The Pulse, which focuses on public opinion in China. Right, right. Um, so that's fantastic. Staying with you just for a second here, Michael, can you talk about the methodology behind this particular survey? I mean, any, anytime anyone presents survey data from China, there's always some pushback, and it's understandable from people who are going to insist that it's impossible to get representative samples online. Uh, there are going to be people who will remind you that doing this kind of, of, of survey research is itself illegal uh, in many instances when it comes to China, uh, or they'll tell you that the results are colored by censorship the results are thus unreliable, or that they just reflect heavy-handed propaganda efforts. How, how do you typically respond to those types of critiques, many of which are, you know, have quite a bit of legitimacy to them, right? Yes. Yeah, so this is, this is absolutely uh, an issue that, that researchers face when conducting public opinion research in China. But this is precisely why we deci- decided to partner uh, with Riwi. Uh, so Riwi is a company based in Canada that conducts surveys using a cutting-edge technology called Random Domain Intercept Technology, or RDIT for short. Mm-hmm. And the basic premise of this technology is that it can intercept users uh, when they happen across web pages that do not or no longer exist, such as by entering an incorrect URL. And when they do type an address like that, it will offer them, Rewe will offer them a non-incented survey, which provides an anonymous, safe, and online way to administer surveys in hard-to-access regions of the world, like China, where this problem, con- uh, where running representative surveys is, is an arduous and potentially restrictive process. Clearly, you have an overrepresentation of people who are bad typers, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that, 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 is, that is certainly true. And of course, um, you know, the limits of using a survey like this is that uh, we are only surveying the internet using population of China. So it's representative of those who use the internet in China. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, of course, individuals who, who don't use the internet that this type of survey technology can't capture. But the reliability of these results ultimately are quite reliable and do give us good insight into what the majority of the population that do use the internet uh, do believe. And I will add just one other thing is we have been asked before, you know, why do people take the survey if they weren't incentivized to do it? And this is uh, something that's true of all surveys, which is generally people are interested in the subject of the survey. And that's why they choose to take it. Right, right, right. I actually had a, a pretty extensive political survey uh, that I did the other. It took like half an hour on the phone with this guy, though. It was pretty interesting, though. I, it was the first time I've actually been called for one of these, you know, where you really, I mean, it really walked you. Th- it was obviously on American politics, but it was fun. It was uh, kind of, and yeah, it was for exactly that reason that I'm interested in the subject matter. Anyway, um, it's interesting the two of you chose these two particular questions. First of all, who was responsible for selection of the two questions that you put? I think uh, I talked with Michael, and then we talked with the person at Riwi. This is a pilot survey. We we call it a mm-hmm. pilot because we don't know how good this kind of survey is. And, and secondly, this is not a, a cheap uh, endeavor. So that's why you see we yeah. only have two questions, and uh, we decided... You know, one, we, we want to have the questions whose result we can compare uh, to conventional surveys, which will help us to ah, better right. understand the value of this kind of survey. And what was the thinking behind the pairing of these two questions? I mean, the first, which is about Chinese attitudes toward the U.S., 
that isn't surprising at all. It's interesting for reasons that we will obviously want to get into. But what was the thinking about pairing it with the question about China's perceptions of what the rest of the world thinks of it? How did these, they don't seem like they're quite uh, symmetrical. The two questions definitely aren't uh, super symmetrical, but we went into this project with the goal of starting regularized public opinion surveys in China about U.S.-China relations and to identify possible misperceptions prevalent among the Chinese public about the United States and about Chinese foreign policy. And two features of current survey work stood out to us, uh, which further motivated us to start this project and to ask these questions. Mm -hmm. The first is that there's regularized public opinion surveys that measure American attitudes towards China, such as those conducted by Pew and Gallup, right. which are two very high quality surveys and have asked a few different questions, not just in the United States, but also across developed democracies around the world about their attitudes towards China. And we felt that that kind of regularized work, which we hope to eventually build up to and achieve, uh, was was missing from the, the literature available or, or the research available on Chinese public opinion. Uh, and second, there's excellent academic public opinion research in China that make use of surveys. I'll highlight the work here of, of uh, Dr. Huang Haifeng. He's a mm -hmm. professor at uh, University of uh, California, Merced, uh, Merced uh, that looks at how the Chinese public underestimates or overestimates qualities of China and how those can be corrected. For example, how they're the consequence of certain types of misinformation and how when new information is supplied, people tend to change their views. And uh, one fascinating area we wanted to explore was how Chinese think China is viewed internationally in light of all this other survey work uh, that we've seen, like those done by Pew and Gallup, that suggests that China isn't viewed particularly well in developed democracies. And there seems to be a downward trend in, in developing countries as well. When I first looked at the survey, I thought about the pairing of these two questions. And I thought that maybe your operating hypothesis had something to do with how negative sentiments that the majority of Chinese now seem to hold toward the U.S. were in some way related to the evident self-confidence that China feels. So in my mind, there did seem to be some sort of connection. And I was uh, curious to see how that would play out. I would love to see that actually track over time to see whether there is some kind of an inverse correlation between sentiment toward the United States and belief in China's global perception. It'd be interesting. Anyway, so so in terms of Chinese perceptions on international opinion on China, I, I think one of the things that you guys did with the survey that I really enjoyed was how you included this expert commentary. You know, So as you read down through the results, you had people, reputable China scholars, who were um, you know commenting on the results. And, and one that really caught me was what Jude Blanchett said. Uh, he made this observation that, you know, the surprise that many Americans and Westerners would probably register on learning that a large majority of Chinese believe China to be viewed, you know, positively just shows how we are not paying enough attention to how China is actually viewed in, in Africa or in Latin America or in, in much of the rest of the developing world in the global South. Uh, but do you think, uh, I'll ask you, Yahweh, do you think that, that Chinese who answered that question truly had Africa and Latin America in mind when they were, were answering? Or do you think they were maybe unaware of or willfully ignoring the evidence of American, European, Australian, South Asian, maybe even Southeast Asian views of China? Uh, maybe another way of putting this is, isn't this maybe just another example of the same kind of deluded exceptionalism that so many Americans are prone to suffering? <laughs> you know, this idea... Look, I mean, you know, Americans are, are surprised to learn that America isn't universally admired and regarded as the greatest nation on earth. 
you know, American democracy, shock is not the only form of democracy out there. And that, you know, not everybody sees America as that shining city on a hill, right? So, I mean, I, I thought that that's, my, my first reaction was that, that maybe this, this is evidence of the same kind of exceptionalist delusion. I, I I still believe, even though uh, Brian Wong's article and and other comments uh, point out to the fact that uh, uh, perceptions of China in developing countries are probably totally different from perceptions of China in Japan, in European countries, in the United States. You know that uh, mm-hmm. is is a valid point. But when I look at the result, I tend to believe this has a lot to do with the availability of information to the Chinese, you know, certainly mm. I think they're ignorant about, or they don't know uh, how Japanese uh, perceive China, how Americans perceive China. Uh, although, you know, this group that we are able to post this question is online. And I think if you compare those people that are online to those that are not online, those uh, online certainly are more informed of what's going on outside. But I still, you know, obviously this needs to be backed up by other statistics is I think it's access to information. If you watch primetime news in China, you know, you have the first 25 minutes all about good things in China. And then the five minutes left over are focused on how bad things are in the U.S. and the other parts of the world. You know, this survey uh, took place in the in the context of you know China has much better control of the pandemic, whereas in the U.S. and the other parts of the world, uh, they certainly have different. And and I think maybe they inferred from the fact that since we are able to do such a good job, since our economy is still in good shape, you know, we got to be admired. Uh, other parts of the world got to have positive. Uh, perception of, of us you know that that's my my guess and uh, uh, again you know I I think and which I pointed out is the China's uh, information processing is is very successful and very effective and you know this is also what uh, since Xi Jinping come to power is try to bolster people's confidence you know in their own system in their own road you know in in their own eventual becoming a supreme power uh, in in the world. Yeah, yeah, and I, w- I would very much agree. I, I honestly don't think that this reflects, you know, careful, hmm, you know what, actually, you know, to answer this question, I'm going to think about how people, you know, in Zimbabwe or or in, you know, um, in Chile or, or Ecuador think of us. I don't think that was happening. And this does, to me, still highlight a, a pretty severe disconnect. Let's come back to this question in just a little bit, but let me let's talk about Chinese views on the United States. Uh, you guys find that in aggregate, sixty-two percent of Chinese now hold an unfavorable or very unfavorable view of the United States, and it's worth noting that very unfavorable is actually four points higher, thirty-three percent. Uh, as high as that number is, it's actually still quite a bit shy of American unfavorable opinions of China, which Pew has at an historic high of 76%, if I recall correctly. So how do you uh, see these RIWI survey results comparing to findings in other polls that have tried to determine Chinese attitudes toward the U.S.? Michael, I understand you've looked at some of this. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so when we place our results in, in, a, in the broader 
research and broader literature and other surveys that look at how Chinese view the United States, our results are largely consistent mm -hmm. uh, with representative surveys. So surveys that are trying to uh, uh, resemble the, the views of the Chinese population. What this sort of brings us to then is, is why we're seeing this transition over time. Uh, and there are a few different scholars that focus on public opinion research that offer some very interesting perspectives on why this might be the case. And um, uh, referring back again to, to Dr. Huang's work, uh, an argument that, that he makes is that we've seen over the past uh, 30 to 40 years in China a transition from a far too rosy depiction of the United States, such as the one that emerged after the reforming opening up period, the, the idea that the, the moon is rounder abroad, over to uh, one inspired by a much more self-confident vision of China, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. uh, China has uh, achieved all of the socioeconomic prosperity that once uh, that once Chinese looked at uh, in the United States and now think that uh, more assertive policies by the United States on things like trade, for example, are, are attempts to contain or suppress China's pursuit of that, that prosperity. Right. It really starts to rankle now, right, more than it did before. Absolutely. Uh, so what are some of these polls that you looked at, for example, that, that look at Chinese attitudes toward the United States? Uh, so there are a few that, that uh, I can list off the top of my head, which I encourage people to uh, to go read about. So uh, there's there's a fantastic review done in the Journal of Contemporary China of, of five of them by Jessica Chen Weiss. Right. And uh, most of these, actually, they don't look specifically at, uh, you know, how in the abstract people view the United, people in China view the United States, but instead uh, measure uh, Chinese public opinion uh, on things like hawkish and nationalistic attitudes that often involve the United States. And some of this is indicative of sort of what we're measuring, which is that there's a rising anti-American sentiment. Uh, so for example, a, a 2012 survey by the Research Center for Contemporary China at Peking University tried to measure how hawkish Chinese citizens were. And then a, another 2015 and 2016 survey by, by Jessica Chen Weiss and Alan Defoe also tried to measure those those hawkish attitudes. And what these surveys, along with the other three they review, find is that there's this general idea that China should rely more on military strength. It's more distrustful of the United States military presence uh, in the region, and that they find that it, uh, these views, uh, they increase over time. Younger generations, for example, are, are more nationalistic in this sense. Right, right, right. Yahweh, you looked at a, a Global Times uh, survey as well, right? I, I not only looked at the Global Times survey, I also looked at uh, some of the surveys that are done in China on exactly how Chinese perceive the United States. Actually, mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think these findings are pretty uh, interesting, uh, which uh, lead me to believe that the policy since President Trump all the way now to President Biden, his biggest loss is the loss of what I believe uh, U.S. most effective weapon against China is the positive perception held by the Chinese people of the United States. And, and that has been in sharp decline in terms of the lack of trust of America. But if you look at even the Global Times, you know, the famous or infamous strategy cited in one of his daily briefings, he said, you know, 97% of the Chinese polled by the Global Times had a negative view uh, of the United States. But if you look more carefully at the Global Times data, which is all there you know, at its website, it's very interesting. So basically, if you look at that number, it said those that do not like the United States at all, the number is uh, 52,000. 
But then if you look、mm-hmm. like those who used to like America but now start disliking America, that number is forty five thousand. And then there's a third、mm-hmm. number over there. It says you know they like the U.S. because it's an advanced scientific and technological、uh, advancement because of the innovation because of rule of law. But they don't like U.S. policy toward China. That number is close to forty thousand. So if you look at、wow. all these numbers, you know those Chinese who 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 have、uh, a more or less objective view of the United States. You know I think they are still in the majority that they believe the United、hmm. States is is a is a democracy. United States has a tremendous international influence. United States is a big military power that can project,、uh, you know, its power all over the world. I think majority of the Chinese, you know, one survey that was done by the China U.S. Exchange Foundation, you know, they they have a popular survey. They also survey the experts of the experts, particularly on the professors, faculty members. You know, this survey was conducted in 2019. Over ninety-two percent of them believe、mm-hmm. that you know U.S.、Uh, has uh, unparalleled uh, capacity in innovation. You know, think yeah, think about、yeah. it. So I I think our number sixty-two is relatively low in terms of unfavorability.、Mm. You know, there is one U.S. company called Crowell and Morning LLP survey in Chinese. They call Morning Zixun. I believe that might be a consulting firm that is operating both in the U.S. and in China. According to its survey, seventy-four percent of the Chinese surveyed do not like the the U.S. So ours is sixty-two. Obviously, you know, if we're going to do this again, we need to drill down in terms of that. You know, we need to ask more specific,、uh, you know, tailored questions to find out what exactly. Uh, you know these perceptions are. You know it's it's not monolithic, and、uh, I still believe that the Chinese side, despite the fact that、uh, information is not free,、uh, you know, in terms of their view of the U.S., you know, as as a power, it's more objective. Although they they do not like what U.S. is doing to China now. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I I was looking at at the results, and one thing that stuck out for me. Was that the fifty-five to sixty-four age group? Those are you know people who really came of age in the early years of reform and opening. Among those, you see both the highest levels of very unfavorable and almost the highest levels of very favorable. Right? It's like the, of among demographic groups, this age group seems to be the most polarized when it comes to attitudes toward the U.S. I guess I'm not surprised by this. I mean, just this is the age group that、uh, I'm in. You know, that's right above me. I'm at the lower end of that, and just for my own sample. I get the impression that there really are a lot of strong Americophiles who also have a, a very Americophobic streak in them as well. I mean, it's pretty divided even within individuals in that group. What do you suppose accounts for this? We were talking about sort of the, the generation effect on this, but what is it about this generation that has them so polarized over the United States? I I think the the other survey I I mentioned I think is done by the China U.S. Exchange Foundation also pointed out to the fact that the older you are,、uh, the more unfavorable view、uh, you're going to hold against the U.S. and the younger you are,、uh, there's a more positive view of of the United States.、Hmm. 
I think for the older generation, particularly as as you mentioned, you know, above fifty in their in their sixties, you know, I, I guess the kind of education they received, you know, the access of information uh, they have, uh, sort of have colored or tainted their view of the United States, and uh, many of them certainly grew up in the Mao era, and and you know that that's the era when anti-American. Uh, sentiment uh, was was the deepest, and uh, maybe that uh, prejudice uh, still is there. You know, it may be one dormant for a few years, and and now with the U.S. and China uh, in this fierce uh, rivalry, uh, those that have been suppressed uh, kind of uh, now are flowing up. Mm-hmm. Not long ago, I had an academic named Yao Lin uh, Lin Yao, actually is Chinese name. On my show, uh, a political scientist, he's now getting a law degree at Yale, but he was on the show to talk about beaconism uh, and uh, Chinese attitudes toward America. We were specifically talking about why it is that so many Chinese you know, regime critics or dissidents, both in China and in the Chinese diaspora, were so supportive of Donald Trump. But really, pro-Trump attitudes were, as far as I can tell, quite widespread, even among ordinary Chinese, despite you know, all the gratuitous insults toward China and everything. When, when we look at most other developed countries, at least, the polling data suggests that Donald Trump was a major reason for a decline in favorability toward America. And we see that it rebounded somewhat after Biden took office. Has this at all been the case with China or has the Biden victory not done anything to improve favorability among Chinese? No, I think of the major countries that were polled uh, the view of the United States has changed significantly after Biden was elected. Uh, but in uh, the case in China is exactly the opposite. There, There is no change. There is no uptick in terms of the view right. of, of China. I think that beaconism, uh, certainly in the wake of what happened on January the 6th, uh, has seriously uh, eroded uh, many Chinese belief that U.S. Uh, is is a model, particularly you know in, in uh, as as a democracy, whether you know that model is there or not. You know, I I, I think that uh, beacon light has has uh, if not completely uh, darkened, it's it has uh, dimmed uh, a lot. Yeah, yeah, and we'll talk about besides January sixth, another major factor in that in in just a little bit. But I guess what I was getting at with that question, I think, and and this is this is um, what I was really hoping to, to hear about: Are Chinese people on the whole, do you sense, now convinced that American hostility toward China isn't just rooted in partisanship or in who sits in the White House, but it's even it's deeper than that that it, it's it's more sort of structural or something, that America's real intention, not as a party or uh, as a White House administration, but it's America's intention to stymie China's rise, to destabilize China, to hamstring it. Is that the the idea now that's gelling in the Chinese mind? I, I think that idea that the United States is out there uh, to undermine the rise of China, uh, to even uh, make China disintegrate, just like uh, the former Soviet Union, has become stronger and stronger among the elite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that that doesn't mean that the United uh, Chinese people, the Chinese elite, you know, their their view of the U.S., you know, where U.S. is, you know, how powerful U.S. is, 
you know, that's that's a different perception over there. But I I think the 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 belief that U.S. is out there to to you know has less to do almost nothing to do with ideology, it has very little to do with the human rights or the other things. It you know basically the U.S. goal is is to undermine the rise of China. Does not allow China to be a, a competing rival. Does not allow China to edge the U.S. out of East Asia and Western Pacific. You know I I think. That conviction is 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 getting there and is sinking deeper and deeper into the psyche of the Chinese leaders and of Chinese elite. Although they still believe maintaining a good relationship with the United States is good for the future of China, is good for China's economy. But but I I think in the coming years, you know, this these two is you know to have good relationship is good for China, or the U.S. Is out there to basically make China disintegrate, you know, not to allow yeah. China to get to the level so that China will be a equal uh, rival of the U.S. You know, I, I think the balance of these two ideas will impact the outcome uh, of of where this bilateral relationship is going to go. It's it's interesting because you know we have in the United States a broadly held popular narrative now, right? About uh, about China. When you ask Americans about their their views, the ones who hold a negative view on China, which is of course a, a substantial majority now, they would say China is totalitarian. That its people don't have fundamental freedoms. That they have cheated for many decades in international trade. That they have stolen billions of dollars in American IP. They've reneged on agreements like allowing Hong Kong to have uh, universal suffrage. They've threatened to, you know, snuff out another vibrant democracy in in Taiwan. They have uh, committed, if not genocide, then something like you know crimes against humanity in Xinjiang. And now China is hell bent on on displacing the United States as the top dog globally. So, from your answer just now, we're seeing the outlines of something analogous to that held by the majority of Chinese elites. You were saying. What are its elements? You've talked about America wanting to keep China down. What about its its views on America's future itself? I mean, on America domestically. What does it see? Does it see America as some kind of desperate declining power, for example? Well, uh, I, I think there are competing uh, views of America uh, among China's elite. You know, in the Early years of the People's Republic, you know, of course, you know, whatever view Mao was holding would be become the view of the entire party and the, the media. You know, that view um, is basically a fear that uh, uh, the United States would pin its hope of changing the color of China on the third and the fourth. Generations of the Chinese people, you know, John Foster Dulles,、right. you know, the peaceful evolution thing, and of course, you know, with the、uh, reform and the opening up, you know, that、uh, view has somewhat disappeared. But it, 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 it's there. I, I don't think it has ever gone. There, there, a, a, a small group of decision makers, you know, if not、uh, at the very top, you know, at least、uh, at the. You know the security, intelligence, and and all of those people still hold this view that U.S. There is a vast conspiracy, you know, in Pentagon,、uh, at the Situation Room of the White House,、uh, and you know, John Marshall, 
type of people that you know they they are going to do everything possible uh, to undermine and to make China to undermine the rights of China to make China disintegrate. And then I think in at the turn of the century, in the early twenty first century, there's one view、uh, that is similar to what was held in the nineteen fifties. You know, that's、uh, Senior Colonel Dai Xu, the so called、uh, mm -hmm, C shaped、uh, encirclement、uh, of of China, and you know other、uh, generals like Zhang Zhaozhong and、uh, you know this the, the talking heads of the retired. Uh, military, you know, they they sort of、uh, perpetuating, uh, 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 you know, an image of U.S.、Uh, which is bent、uh, to to destroy China. However, I I think these views have little or very、uh, you know insignificant impact on on the general public. You know, poll poll after poll. You know, the one that、uh, I looked at、uh, because of this podcast that was conducted by telephone in twenty twenty. Uh, by the Central China University of Technology, it basically said two thirds of the people that were interviewed still believe the United States has tremendous international influence, has very strong economy. You know, its scientific、uh, technology is very developed, innovation is unparalleled. In 2020, two thirds of the people on the telephone、yeah. still believe in that. However, I I think you know what happened. Last year,、uh, because of you know Black Matters Life, because of what happened early this year,、uh, have made many people, including maybe the top leader,、uh, who says you know Shi、uh, and Shi on our side, because look at the mess in the in the U.S. and look at how brighter the situation is in in China. So we're going to come out of this competition on top. I I think. This is the most dangerous perception,、uh, you know, held by the Chinese because it's going to make the leaders more reckless. And the dangerous perception held by the U.S. side is to believe that China is out there、uh, to to edge out the U.S. influence, to kick U.S. out of the Western Pacific and East Asia. So these two perceptions. You know, if more and more people on both sides are going to attach themselves, attach their decision making to these two, I think this would be the most significant source of future conflict between the two countries. Right. I think it's easy for us to recognize some of the recent inflection points, things that that made、uh, Chinese attitudes toward the United States turn abruptly more negative. You know, the trade war, of course, and the COVID response. But what about if you go back further? I, I feel like there are other major inflection points that we ought to look at.、Uh, when was the last time when survey data showed that most Chinese people actually had a, a rather more positive attitude toward the United States? As far as I can remember, you know, if you look at some of the very、uh, traumatic moment in U.S.-China relation, you know, the the bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. You know the EP three, the EP three collision in two thousand one, April of two thousand one. You know the、right. uh, interdiction of the Chinese Inhe, you know, on the high sea. Right.、Uh, but I think the the most, you know, positive moment in terms of China sees the U.S. as 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 a buddy, as a friend, as a partner, is in two thousand eight, when、uh, President、mm -hmm. 
Bush, you know, W, and his dad, former President Bush, they were both in town for the Summer Olympic Games. And, you know, not only they showed up at the opening ceremony, they also went to the volleyball, uh, the beach volleyball venue. And, you know, they were uh, having dinner with Hu Jintao uh, in the Forbidden City. You know, I I think all of that convinced the Chinese that, you know, United States and, 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 and China you know they're they're in this uh, together. You know there there is such a thing called uh, common humanity that maybe you know they can you know jointly pursue. And of course you know things have changed a little bit uh, after uh, the Olympic Games because of the Wall Street you know tsunami, and and you know that was a turning point uh, in terms of the overview that you know U.S. is invincible, but the collapse, uh, the financial collapse. Uh, and 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 there are people in China who believe it was China that saved the United States uh, during during right. that crisis. But I, I think 2008, as far as I can remember, you know, the appearance of of one former president and one sitting president, all for China's big party. You know, that that's a a, a very big moment. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Michael, do you know when the last time we had sort of uh, in terms of the data, a kind of more positive attitude from China toward the U.S.? So in terms of a, a representative survey of the Chinese population, I'm afraid I can't, I can't answer that question. But what I do know is that there was a, a good developing or a good body of literature that was developing in the early 2000s that was looking at why Chinese international students decided to come to the United States to study. And what a lot of that qualitative and quantitative exploration revealed was that there were very positive perception of the United States, not that necessarily the United States would live up to those students' expectations that a lot of these studies uh, uh, would eventually find. Um, But it was uh, much, much higher, obviously, in the reform and opening up period, and at least through the early 2000s, such that these researchers were were able to detect very positive perceptions uh, of the United States amongst that particular group. Mm-hmm. When I started this this conversation, I was talking about how this question, this pair of questions that you asked, seemed in my mind to be related. And the word that popped into my mind that, that linked them was COVID. I, I kept thinking, well, you know, how China has come out of this is feeling not only much more confident, as, as Dr. Liu was saying, with this sense that the, the rest of the world certainly must admire the way that it, it handled the, the COVID-19 pandemic, because Chinese certainly feel very, very proud about that. But also in their negative reactions toward the United States, my sense just from talking to many Chinese friends is that Americans didn't show a lot of sympathy for China during the initial months of the outbreak. They tried to make the the issue a, a political one. I mean, we've talked on this show before about how regime type was so often part of the discussion, and it, it seemed to to make Americans convinced that because this is happening in an authoritarian, you know, uh, East Asian state, that this this had nothing to do with us. And there was this sense that this obliviousness about the inevitable spread to the U.S. was evidence, again, this is in the mind of a lot of Chinese people I've talked to, that, that they didn't think of Chinese people as quite human. And then, of course, they began to just straight up blame China for the pandemic. And, you know, this was a way not just this isn't just the Trump administration, Americans more generally, you know, to kind of avoid accountability for the country's disastrous, you know, mishandling that resulted, as I remind you, of well over now 700,000 lives lost. Meanwhile, um, they were, of course, very proud of their own 
sense of, of how they handled the pandemic. This so-called lab leak hypothesis also, you know, had a very negative effects on attitudes toward not just the United States, but also, of course, Australia. We have to remember this was happening at the same time as uh, crises over Hong Kong and over Xinjiang were, were breaking out. And there was this belief among so many of the Chinese people that I talked to that even even ones who recognized that what has been done to the Uyghur people in Xinjiang is deeply problematic, people who would even recognize that it is a gross human rights violation uh, or who, who recognize that uh, Hong Kong was deeply problematic. But they still also believe that these issues have been weaponized by the U.S. in the service of, of a broader anti-China agenda. Can we talk about the, this cluster of things happening in 2020 and 2021 and, and how that affected Chinese attitudes? Is it evident in the survey results or, or is it something that you've picked up just also from conversations with people? So, Kaiser, I totally uh, agree with you that uh, all these issues, you know, they, they are problems uh, that the Chinese government uh, have have done, you know, how they treat uh, people in Hong Kong, you know, how they treat uh, the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in Xinjiang, you know, the, the trade imbalance and, and uh, uh, Huawei, you know, high-tech companies and, uh, you know, all these, as, as you know, I, I think you use a, a, a very accurate word, uh, it being uh, weaponized. South China Sea is another issue. I, I think the biggest weapon that is now being wielded uh, by, by the U.S. Is, is, is Taiwan. And and uh, uh, Michael uh, does disagree with me on on this point, but I think there might be a small group of Americans, whether you know they're inside the government or outside the government, in the think tanks, in the basement of Pentagon, truly believe the only weapon they they can use to stop the rise of China uh, is is to induce uh, mainland China and Taiwan to get into a conflict. And and this the, the, there's this piling on that started with President Trump, uh, but it it it's been multiplied. Yeah, it's gathering yeah, by, steam by the yeah. the Biden administration, and and now we we saw the leaked uh, list of democratic countries that are invited uh, to attend the democracy summit. Uh, Taiwan is also on that list. So this is going to be another uh, flare point between U.S. And, and China on the issue of Taiwan. Right, 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 right. Let's talk about um, generational change in attitude towards the U.S. as reflected in the survey, and also from from our own observations. You know, we've talked a lot on Seneca on this program about how younger people, the Jolin Ho, the post-90s, for instance, seem to have a lot more confidence about China in their call it patriotism or nationalism, whichever term you prefer, that it's no longer just a defensive thing. Uh, it's not doesn't just take the form of feeling mistreated by Western media coverage, but it's become much more assertive, more along lines of, you know, you know, China is doing it better. You know, China actually, we've been modest about the China model, but maybe it's time for us to, you know, teach you some lessons. So if you'll just stop talking for a while and listen, you might learn something. Um I feel like that is manifested in your survey results. I feel like I can see that in the data. Uh, is that a fair claim? Is that is that a claim that you think that, that data supports that level of confidence, especially in the second question? I think you've, you've made a very astute observation. Um, so quickly referring, for example, back to that, that 
that review of, of surveys done by Jessica Chen Weiss uh, in the Journal of Contemporary China, uh, something that she discusses very well is this idea that we there are a variety of mixed results about what younger generations are thinking and how hawkish or nationalistic they really are uh, in the 2000s and the early 2010s, because uh, after the institution of, of patriotic education in China in 1994 and 1995, you, you had this problem where there really weren't enough students to survey that had actually gone through the education system at that point. And that was a problem with a lot of earlier survey work, um, really before about 2015. Then in about 2015 and 2016, you know, her survey results do indicate that there is a statistically significant difference in sort of a hawkish, nationalistic, and maybe anti-American orientation of young mm-hmm. Chinese um, when compared to older generations. And then I do think you you see a reflection of that in in our survey results because yes you you do see this self confidence uh, maybe even an an overestimation of of sort of China's achievements on the international stage in that second question and alluding back to the the point you made earlier where you saw for example amongst older generations for example people um, over the age of of fifty you saw there was sort of a bifurcation in the results you saw right. that there was people who uh, looked at the U.S. very favorably and looked at the people who looked at the U.S. very unfavorably. And you don't have that with younger generations, right. which suggests that it's the people either before the institution of that of those that patriotic education um, who, you know, grew up with a much more positive conception of the United States. Um, but even, you know, separating this from that that education campaign and just looking more generally at China's rapid economic development, the post-1990, post-1995 generation they grew up with China's rapid advancement. They grew up with high-speed rail. They grew up with, you know, leading financial technology companies, uh, et cetera. And that has sort of dimmed what I think older generations had had looked at the U.S. for, this socioeconomic prosperity that was supposed to arise out of things like democracy and human rights and freedom. And while China may not have those things, it still achieved the same ends. And that's what's producing the sort of self-confidence amongst uh, China's younger generations today. And that's always going to reflect on, you know, the United States as that that sort of diametrical other that's always saying you cannot achieve these things without. Uh, and I mean, since that is the the key message. So I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to posit that there is actually a positive correlation between confidence and negative feelings toward the United States in, in contemporary China among, among younger people. So we've looked at this, uh, actually, and we hopefully will release an addendum to our survey results sometime in the near future. Um, and there is, there is evidence that's indicative of, of that pattern. Um, but actually, the, the results are not as clear cut as uh, yeah. you might think. <laughs> uh, so I think you'll just have to, to wait and see and check our website in the next few weeks to, to look at those results or potentially look at future ways of the survey. But it does seem like, uh, yes, uh, the majority of people who thought, you know, viewed China very favorably, uh, the majority also uh, view the United States unfavorably. But we did also see this contingent of people who uh, thought China was viewed very favorably, but also viewed the U.S. favorably. And that's a puzzle we're still uh, trying to answer. Those are my kind of people right there. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, I mean, I think they're, they're, they're kind of deluded. But no, I, I know what you mean. Uh, I mean, if you had to guess as to the direction of causality, though, do you think it's the confidence that breeds the anti-Americanism or is it the anti-Americanism that brings on that, that, that belief in, in a positive perception of China? 
so the the social scientist uh, in in training in me says rebels I can't offer anything yeah, about right, right, anything right. about causation at the moment. Of course, good. You passed we, the test, young Padawan. Yeah, yeah. We, can, we exactly. We can yeah. we can only really look at, at a correlation with these data uh, with these data. But uh, you know, this is a really fascinating area of research where social scientists and political scientists are trying to tease out uh, the direction of causality through things like survey experiments. Yeah. Uh, so I really, for anyone who hasn't checked out, I think I've probably mentioned him three times on this podcast because his work is so good. Um, but uh, one scholar that, that that is sort of leading in this area is is, is Dr. Huang, um, where he's using survey experiments to actually tease out, okay, which which way is the arrow pointing in terms of how these attitudes are formed? Uh, you know, what where do they originate from, and how do you correct them? Let, let me um, wrap up by asking one last question before we go on to to recommendations. And this, what are some of the factors that are contributing to the decline in Chinese perceptions of the U.S. that you think most Americans are oblivious to, are, are unaware of? What are some of the things that – and then maybe, you know, what are some of the things that uh, – the fairly low-hanging fruit that Americans might be able to do, that our administration might be able to do uh, at low cost to stop that precipitous decline? Big questions, but what are they unaware of? And what are some of the low-hanging uh, policies that we might pursue in order to slow the decline, at least? I think there are quite a few of the things that uh, the administration, uh, particularly its China team, uh, might be uh, blind to. Uh, one of the things is, you know, there's there's the book. I, I, I don't know whether uh, you're going to interview the author of the book uh, called uh, Long Game. You know, there there is no difference between the book called Long Game and the 100-Year Marathon. But that seems to be the narrative now uh, is very close to the heart of the China team members, is, is that yeah, there yeah. there is no such a thing uh, among China's decision makers that, you know, our goal, our paramount goal has nothing to do with uh, uplifting the living conditions of our people, the pursuit of happiness by our people, but you know, to edge out the United States, you know, out of East Asia, Western Pacific. I think that's probably one thing the administration should uh, be clear-eyed about. Uh, the other uh, factor I think uh, that may help uh, stabilize the relationship is maybe the American government officials, some of the think tank people are not uh, sensitive to the fact that, you know, when they accuse uh, China of genocide, uh, they're also committing uh, double standards or even hypocrisy is that, you know, if it's a terrorist attack in New York, in London, in Madrid, you know, it's a terrorist attack. If anything like that happens in China, whether in Tiananmen Square or in Kunming train station, that's the outcome of China's bad ethnic minority policy. It has nothing to do uh, with, with terrorism. I, I think the U.S. side should be keenly aware of that. And the third one is what we have talked about, is about American, you know, we're a democracy, you're not. You know, we're so much better uh, than than you are. But the, the facts do not bear those things out. So I, I think a little bit humility and modesty on the part of the U.S., you know, you know not to be so big hoopla about the, the summit for democracy, but, you know, talk about good governance. 
rather than to to talk about you know our system is so much more superior than your system. You know, I I think that kind of condescension, uh, uh, you know, should be, you know, if it's contained, uh, will be a lot better uh, for for a more. You know, let's not talk about a better relationship, but at least to stabilize the relationship so that it does not uh, get into uh, a conflict. Uh, lastly, I would say, you know, on this kind of entity list, uh, this measures against Chinese companies, particularly like like Huawei. You you have to present evidence why companies like Huawei is is posing uh, a national security threat. You know, if right. if not, then you know, Ren Zhengfei. We did a profile at our website. You know, the entire Huawei uh, apparatus and and all the company employees and and managers in China would believe this has nothing to do with national security. It's it's just a securitization of of you know what U.S. can do to slow down China's uh, scientific uh, progress. Yeah, yeah, you're preaching to the choir on that one with me. I I would go back to COVID, and and I think that Americans do not understand how our conversations about China and and COVID fall on Chinese ears. I don't think they understand how deeply offensive, how much uh, perception of you know contempt, dehumanization, racism are are inherent in the way that we responded to China's agony, and the way that we seem oblivious to uh, how well some of other countries have handled it and, and how poorly we have. I think it's it's really shameful. I, I feel like that that's a, a major one that, that Americans just haven't really woken up to, just uh, how that has has diminished American esteem in Chinese eyes. Michael, do you have some pet peeves? So I think the greatest problem at the moment or the biggest pet peeve I have in mind is, I, I, you know, if if I could make every single person in the United States, you know, pick up a book of their choice about China to learn a little bit more about the country, to learn a little bit more about how the government works and how the economy works and, you know, how it actually responded to COVID, what the origins of the pandemic were, et cetera, you know, I, I absolutely would. I think, you know, a big problem with the sort of maybe lack of sympathy is, is the right term amongst people in the United States towards China when the COVID pandemic first broke out is this sort of lack of understanding, you know, of the country, you'd be really surprised if you look at statistics about Americans ability to point out where countries are around the world, there would be plenty of Americans who actually can't find China on a map. And you know, this, this, this issue generally seems, I think, very far away to to a lot of Americans. And maybe this is something that (laughs) that ain't low hanging fruit, though. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) that's a big one. That's a big one. Okay. Yeah. Um, Exactly. But this is something that, you know, I hope that, that for example, Pew and Gallup would, would look into as well when they run their surveys, which is actually testing a level of understanding of Americans before asking them questions, or in addition to rather, in addition to asking them questions about how they perceive China. Um, because Get a, we do a know, sense of knowledge of China. Exactly. Um, because it is helpful to look at those those correlates. And there are studies, for example, that show that the propensity for people to want to go to war with a country, for example, is much higher if they can't point to where it is on a map right. and when they can't describe basic facts about it. And I think the, the, the many of many of the problems I think that, that we've identified during this call are a consequence of the fact that um, when it comes to education about the issue at the public level, whether it's in the United States or China, 
So I would definitely bet on uh, a Chinese citizen's ability to point to where the United States is based off what we described about generations um, and, and international student travel, um, that the, the level of knowledge is, is low and there's a lot to be desired in terms of understanding issues uh, to a level where they can actually make informed judgments about the, the direction of the country's policy towards the other. That's right. Kaiser, can I just make a quick comment on, on the issue of, of COVID? I, I think I, I agree with what you said, that uh, COVID is, is a turning point. I agree with you that uh, it's wrong for President Trump and you know members of Congress uh, to, to blame uh, China uh, for the, you know, the origin and, and all that things. But I also think, you know, on, on the part of China, uh, you know, they, they should uh, be more transparent uh, and and particularly during the early days uh, of of the pandemic, you know, I I, I think uh, to a certain extent, you know, uh, American, you know, feeling bad about China, blaming China, uh, you know, to 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 a certain extent is caused by the earlier lack of transparency, you know, in terms of what happened in in Wuhan, and, and no yeah, doubt that China has to acknowledge. And and I, I I don't you know history eventually will tell us you know what happened in the early days uh, of you know December leading up uh, to the final uh, shutdown of of the city in, in Wuhan what exactly happened over there, uh, but you know I also would like to say that U.S. and China worked together in West Africa to contain uh, Ebola. I I, I think in 2014 you know, that. Yes. You know, I, I keep mentioning that. I, I said that actually should be the right approach for the two countries, you know, as superpowers uh, of the world, you know, to collectively try to do everything to contain the virus. And now, because of the politicization of the origins and other issues, you know, the t- two countries, there's no cooperation whatsoever. And that is a, a travesty. That's tragic. And, and that's really bad. Yeah. And that's one thing. I think that the White House, uh, U.S. government can do, you know, to basically demonstrate to the whole world, you know, we're competing, but we're also serious about cooperation. So I, I really look forward to, I'm really glad to hear that you're going, this is just a pilot and that you're going to be continuing to do this uh, and you're going to be continuing to put out data on Chinese perceptions and U.S. perceptions of China. I will follow that very eagerly. Um, and I hope that uh, you send me some links to survey, you know, I will... I'm sorry. And I, I will be sure to put links to the, the survey and to all all subsequent surveys uh, and, and results uh, on, on SubChina. The, these links to this will be on, of course, the show notes to this podcast. While you are at SubChina, check out the other great stuff. Why did I say that? While you are at uh, the U.S. China Perception Monitor, check out the other great stuff on that site. A lot of really fascinating interviews. Um, but let's move on to, to recommendations for now. Uh, first, I want to remind people that if you like the work that we're doing with the Cynic Podcast, uh, make sure to subscribe to SubChina Access. That's really what uh, keeps the lights on for us. So, you know, do that. Uh, that's It's a fantastic newsletter. It comes to your inbox daily, and it's put together with loving care by Jeremy and his crack team uh, at, at SubChina. So um, let's move on to recommendations, and let's start with you, Michael. What do you have for us? 
So the, the two books I want to recommend are a slightly older one, uh, Freakonomics by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner, and uh, a much newer one named Causal Inference, The Mixtape. And the reason I want to recommend these books is uh, the Nobel Prize in Economics was recently given to three economists who special, specialize in the development of uh, methodologies that can reveal causality in the real world without use of an experiment. And uh, these three economists were Guido Imbens, Joshua Angris, and David Card. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have been the, the methods that they've developed have been really instrumental to teasing out uh, whether X can cause Y uh, or whether, uh, you know, or how can we know that X causes Y? And this has been instrumental in political science as well. So, for example, um, how do we know that uh, factionalism within the Chinese government determines the allocation of, of bank loans, which is something that uh, uh, Victor Schur at UCSD has looked at? Uh, or, for example, how do we know whether uh, the what the effect of college education on earnings is. Uh, right. So for sort of an introduction, uh, an introductory lesson into some of those methods and, and kind of recent advances in economics, Freakonomics is a really good place to start. And then for those who are uh, interested in diving a little bit deeper into the quasi-experimental techniques, Causal Inference, the Mixtape, uh, is a really excellent book by Scott Cunningham at Baylor University. Uh, and it has a cool sort of music rap theme twist to the book, which makes it fun <laughs> to read. And even if it's a little bit, uh, even if it's a little bit advanced, I think it's a great book uh, for anyone to sort of pick up and get a general gist of a lot of the, the, the some of the most fascinating social science research uh, that is coming out today. It sounds right about my speed. I, <laughs> I'll check it out. I don't have to ask you dumb questions about causality anymore. No, I'm I'm joking. I I, I was I was just trying to bait you there. Okay, uh, Yahweh, what do you have for so us? So the book I'm going to recommend, I have something to do uh, with the translation of that book from uh, Chinese into English. So that's the book uh, by Professor late uh, Professor Gao Hua. The book is called How the Red Sun Rose. Uh, so it was mm. initially published in Chinese in Hong Kong. The uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong Press put it out first in 2000. I remember... I bought a copy of the book and trying to take the book inside China, I was stopped at Shenzhen and then the custom people uh, seized the book and basically said, you know, you have two ways uh, to to approach this. One uh, is, you know, we're going to take the book and, you know, you, you can file a form uh, and then come back to us and we'll decide whether we can give you the book. Or the other way of doing it is just abandon the book, drop the book uh, in the garbage can. The book is, is so good about the intrigues, uh, you know, sort of inside the, the, the party and how Mao eventually was able to dominate uh, the Chinese Communist Party. I, I think the book could serve as a good uh, telescope or, or periscope to see uh, what uh, is going to happen, you know, and how the current leader uh, managed to go all the way to the top. You know, so the What's the Chinese name of the book? Uh, Hong Taiyang shi zhe me sheng qi de. So how the red sun ah, rose by, by Gao Hua. Okay. And, and Gao Hua was a true believer of you know political eventual political reform in China. I remember when we decided to have a meeting on uh, political reform and you know pilot projects in Shenzhen. He wrote to me. He said, you know, I heard about your meeting. I would like to come to the meeting. This was in two thousand. I think the same year when the book came out. And, and uh, since the publication of the book, uh, Gaohua was blacklisted in, in China. If, if you look, read the book, uh, you, you would you'd be shocked that he relied on no classified archives. You know, it's all based on open 
sources. The fact that he was able to to basically describe the Chinese Communist Party politics from 1930 to 1945, and, and you know the, the year when Mao basically uh, could no longer be challenged by anyone within the party. You know, it's it's a fascinating account, and, and it's it's a book that will help us to gain a better understanding uh, of of the opaque politics uh, of of the Chinese Communist Party. I have a second. I can't wait. Second yeah. recommendation is a documentary for those who are interested, you know, in the blockbuster during the National Day, you know, the Chang Jinghu. You know, if you're mm-hmm. waiting to watch it, I would advise that you watch the American PBS uh, documentary called The Battle of Chaoxing. Because, uh, you know, if, if you watch this American documentary and then when, whenever that uh, Chinese blockbuster is available for us to watch online or somewhere, you know, inside China after pandemic, you're, you'll have a, a much better uh, perspective in terms of whether history has been distorted. You know, what are the lessons for, for people about war? And, and, uh, and, and I, I think that probably should be the, the sequencing. Watching the U.S. American Experience documentary first and then watch the Chinese uh, blockbuster. That's an excellent recommendation. I have a feeling we're going to be talking an awful lot about party interpretations of history in coming weeks, uh, given that the sixth plenary session is going on right now. And uh, we're, I think, planning a series of shows around that. Thanks, Yahweh. That's an excellent suggestion. Uh, Michael, you mentioned Freakonomics, and uh, I want to point out that on the latest episode of the Freakonomics podcast, we've got Yuan Yuan Ong on it, which was fantastic. And I, I was uh, really delighted that uh, after her interview at the end, when they were giving credits, it turned out that she had been recommended to the Freakonomics team by somebody who had heard about her from the Seneca podcast, from they had listened to the interview that we had done. And so I got a shout out on that and felt really good. And uh, so I was on a roll. And you also mentioned Mixtape uh, as a part of the title. There's a recent Radio Lab show uh, called Mix. It's a series called Mixtape. And the first one is on DACO cassette tapes, which were a phenomenon in, in the very end of the, the 80s, uh, the early 1990s, really. Uh, DACO cassettes were, of course, these saw-gashed cassette tapes. Later on, there were the same sorts of CDs or catalog cutouts that made their way to China as scrap, as you know, for, to be recycled as plastic scrap. And uh, it, it tells the story of them. And uh, I got uh, interviewed for that, and I show up quite a bit in, in that first episode. It's called DACO, if you want to check that out. But my, my actual recommendation is nice and frivolous compared to the two of yours, um, it's just a, a, a dumb television show. I am not a critical binger of television. I like to just sort of suspend disbelief and just enjoy. The show I've been enjoying mindlessly is called Why the Last Man on, on Hulu. Uh, the premise is that there's some biological cataclysm, a disease of some sort that kills basically every vertebrate or ma- mammal maybe, I don't know, with a Y chromosome. Basically every every male of every you know, animal practically dies, except for one guy and his monkey, basically. He happens to be the son of the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, this woman who, because everyone ahead of her in line, except for one cabinet secretary who they think is also dead, is a man. So she becomes president of this, uh, this 
you know, post-apocalyptic state and trying to run the administration out of the Pentagon. And it's uh, very, very challenging, to say the least. Anyway, um, it's really messed up. There's a lot of your standard post-apocalyptic stuff, but there's also some really interesting, you know, contemporary politics in there, right? Uh, you know, she is a Democrat, uh, this this House uh, Intelligence Committee chair, and then the old administration was a Republican one, and this cabinet secretary who comes kind of back from the dead to challenge her is a uh, hardcore Republican. So it's it's really interesting. Every, like everything else, it's adopt, adapted from a comic book. I haven't read the com- I had never heard of the comic book. I just stumbled on this show and uh, got kind of addicted to it. It's really good. So please watch it so it doesn't get canceled because I want to find out what happens. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys so much. Uh, what a pleasure. And uh, I, like I said, I'll put a link to, to the research, to the uh, survey, and I look forward to the rest of the surveys that you guys put out. So thanks so much. Uh, once again, uh, make sure to, to check out the survey re- results, and I think there will be a lot more forthcoming, and I'll make sure to link to all of it as it comes out. Thanks so much, Dr. Liu, and thanks so much, Michael. Thank you, Kaiser. Thank you so much for having us on the show. Real pleasure. Bye-bye. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Silicon Network. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.